Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32 this Lord's Day as we uh, resume our study of the book of Exodus. We've uh, been out of this book for a few weeks now, and perhaps some of you are joining us today for the first time. And so, uh, just by way of review, uh, we are at a point in Exodus where uh, God has saved His people from slavery. Uh, the people of God, the Israelites, were there in Egypt for about 400 years, and God has now rescued them through Moses. He's delivered them. He's brought them through the waters of the Red Sea. He's given them His Ten Commandments. And over the last eight chapters, we've now been in a section of about 40 days where Moses has gone up the mountain of God and God has given Moses instructions to give to the people regarding how they are to worship God. And so he's given them instructions about the tabernacle, which will eventually become the temple. He's given them instructions about the the high priest, about offerings, all sorts of things regarding worship. And while Moses is there with God, some things are developing down at the camp among the people. There's a, a crisis of faith there, and that's where we find ourselves as we come to today's text in Exodus 32. And so we're going to take a couple of weeks to look at this chapter today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14, and out of reverence for God's holy word, if you're able to stand, if you will, as I read this text for us this Lord's Day. Again, Moses is on the mountain with God, and this word tells us what happens in the camp. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1, we read this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them, and they have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger 
and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing on His people. If you would pray with me, church. Father, we read a text today that tells us about the sin of man. Would You show us today our own sin? Lord, we, we read about the people's desperate need for Moses, their mediator. Would You show us our desperate need for Christ, our mediator? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we come to this text, as we begin a, a new year, now this is a time of year when we ask a lot of questions, where we set a lot of habits, when perhaps we, we consider the course of action that we are taking in our life and our fan, finances and our jobs, and, and we should consider the course of action we're taking in our church and in the Word. We should ask questions. I've asked questions like, for example, why, why continue to study the book of Exodus? Now, we've now been in this book since April of 2016. By my count, this will be the 63rd sermon I've preached from this book. And Lord willing, I'll preach about 75. And we have many churches today that spend very little time in the Old Testament, much less that much time in Exodus. And so the question for us is, is why spend so much time in a book like this? After all, Exodus and many Old Testament books can, can seem a bit archaic to us today. But we can struggle at times to see how they apply to us today. And so, for example, as you think about the things that you are tempted with, perhaps even resolutions you've made for this new year, have you thought much about not worshiping golden cows? Have you been tempted already this year as you've looked down at a golden ring and thought, you know, I ought to melt that down and make something I can worship? The chances are those things haven't even crossed your mind. And so why should we spend so much time in a book where these things can seem so displaced from us, so foreign to us? Why not just spend our time in the Gospels and in Paul's letters and and reading those letters where Paul gives instruction to the church and tells us how we are to live? Well, the short answer is this, that as you study those Gospels and you study those letters, you say they point us right back to Exodus. In fact, we find in one of Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians 10, instruction where he speaks very much about this passage we are in today. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They passed through the sea. He's calling their attention back to the Exodus, back to what took place during the Exodus. And as he calls their attention to those things, he says this in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us. Paul's telling his people, he's telling us today that, that we're to study things like Exodus because there's examples there for us to learn from. And not just examples, he goes on in 1 Corinthians 10 to say, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction." 
And so Paul says we are to learn from these things. We are to be instructed from these things. Well, what are we to learn? Well, then he says a verse that is probably familiar to many of you. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, in light of these things, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul here isn't telling us not to stand firm in our faith. He's saying, if you think that you cannot fall, if you think that you cannot sin, if you look back on the book of Exodus and at the idolatry that takes place here, and you think, well, well, I would never do anything like that. Be careful. In fact, always be careful when you say those words. When you hear about the sin of another. And when you see some wickedness in our world today. But be careful that you don't say, well, I would never... Paul says, take heed. Anyone who thinks he stands, least he fall. If there was ever a time in the history of God's people where perhaps they were standing proudly and they were feeling confident, it was around the time we find ourselves in Exodus 32. It was at a time in Israel's history when they had been freed from their slavery. It was at a time where God had miraculously delivered them and brought them through the waters of the Red Sea. It was at a time where God had given His Word to His people, those ten words, those ten commandments. And it was at a time when God was preparing to lead His people into the land of promise. You think of what we've seen happen here. Think of how God's people have responded with jubilee and responded with shouts of praise. If there was a time for God's people to begin to feel a bit of pride and confidence, this would have been it. But then notice what transpires. A few weeks go by. About 40 days go by. And their leader, Moses, this mediator, this one who goes before God on behalf of the people and comes to the people on behalf of God, he's gone up the mountain, but he hasn't come back yet. Now Moses has gone to the mountain before. That they've heard the voice of God from the mountain giving the Ten Commandments. But but now Moses is gone and days have passed, weeks have passed, and he hasn't come back. And now perhaps they're not so confident. Now perhaps they're getting worried and they're getting anxious. Now we find in this text they're getting to a place where they're beginning to wonder, okay, well, what's going to happen now? Is God really going to do what He said He was going to do? Now, they're going to try to take matters into their own hands. And friends, whenever that happens in our life, whenever we turn from trusting in God to trusting in ourselves, nothing good comes from it. And nothing good comes in this text. But there is something good that can come from it. Because as Paul said, that this is an example for us to learn from. There's instruction here for us today. And so what should we learn? Well, one thing I've put there in your notes, that first point that we should be reminded of and learn is this. That we fall into sin when we fail to trust God. We're reminded here from God's people that we fall into sin when we fail to trust God. I fear that we're so familiar with this passage that perhaps we misunderstand it and misread it. I think we tend to look at this passage sort of like we would look at a rebellious child, a teenager, whose parents have gone away for the weekend. 
And those parents have said to the child, now listen, we're going to go away and, and we're going to trust you. Now don't have a bunch of people over. Don't have a party while we're gone. You, you just do what we tell you to do. And what happens? Mom and dad go away. Kid throws a party. That never would be a familiar situation in my youth, but perhaps in some of yours. So, so we tend to view this passage kind of like that as if, okay, Moses is gone now. He's the mediator. He's, he's the connection to God. He's not there now to tell the people what to do and how to act. And now that he's gone and he's away, we tend to read this like, okay, the people are just going to break loose now. The, the, the people are just going to rebel now against God. And in part, that's what happens. But we need to be careful that we don't miss the, the, the deeper message here of what's taking place among God's people. Now, notice there in verse 1 what happens. That the people saw that, that Moses was delayed in coming down. And they say, as for this Moses, we, we don't know what's become of him. And so there's not a sense here where they're saying, okay, wait, is Moses gone now? Is he watching anymore? Okay, let's, let's go do something crazy. No, they're getting worried. But they're getting anxious. The question is why? Well, again, remember, Moses was the mediator. Moses was the one that spoke to the people on behalf of God and God on behalf of the people. Moses was their connection to God. And now that Moses is gone, and Moses hasn't gone, come back, they're beginning to worry about that connection with God. Now, they shouldn't worry that they had every reason to trust in God. Look at all the things God had done to deliver them. He had already given them His Word, His instruction. They should have been patient. They should have waited on the Lord. I'm sure none of us can identify with impatience <laughs> and with struggling to wait on the Lord. But, but if you try, perhaps you can consider for a moment what they were experiencing. That they hadn't heard from Moses so they hadn't heard from God for days for weeks now and so rather than wait on God rather than wait on Moses they decide to take matters into their own hands in essence the people of God here decide they've got a problem and they're going to fix it themselves and so how will they fix it well they won't do a very good job. In fact, they and their impatience will go into sin, much like we and our impatience often do. That they're going to fix it, the text tells us, by fashioning a, a God like the ones they had seen in the land of Egypt that they had spent so long in. And so they go to Moses, they say up, or go to Aaron, they say up, uh, you make us gods who shall go before us so they want something they can they can see they want something that reminds them of the presence of gods they think back to what they saw in Egypt and you may remember from our study there how these gods of Egypt often took the forms of things like bulls and cows there was the Egyptian god Hathor who was represented by the body of a man and the head of a cow there was the Egyptian god Isis, the queen of the gods, who was depicted with bullhorns coming out of her head. That there was the sun god Ra, and that sun god Ra had with him a, a sacred bull that was covered in gold. And so the cow, the bull, these were worshipped as divine among the Egyptians. In fact, I read one account that said this, the ultimate in bull worship for the Egyptians 
was probably the Apsis bull, considered to be a manifestation of Ptah, the creator god worshipped at Memphis in Lower Egypt. This bull lived in palatial quarters in the precincts of the temple. Only the higher echelons of society were allowed to view it from a special window. Its death was treated on par with the death of Pharaoh and its remains were mummified. When we think about places in the world today, some nations like India, where the people are starving and yet cows roam the street. Why? Because they consider them sacred. They consider them to be gods. And the Hebrew people now are looking back on what they had experienced for years there in Egypt. And as they look back on it, as they wonder where God is, if Moses is coming back, they begin to remember, well, we could could fashion a God for ourselves. We could come up with something to worship. Of course, God had already warned them about these things. They aren't innocent here. God had given them His Ten Commandments. They were to have no other gods before Him, the first commandment. They were to make no idols to worship, the second commandment. They were to not take His name in vain, the third commandment. But they will break all three of these here. And why? Because friends, everyone wants to worship something. Every person alive today will find something to be an object of worship in their life. A.W. Pink said it this way, man must have an object, and when he turns from the true God, he at once craves a false one. That God for the Israelites took the form of a golden cow, but that God, that false God, takes the forms of so many other things in our world today. For some, it's a career For some, it's money. For some, it's material things. For some, it's relationships. It's people. It's it's families. It's it's stuff. It's it's prominence. It's prestige. But for everyone, that there's something they are chasing. That there's something that is supreme in their life. That there's something that people will lay down their dollars and their hours in order to obtain. There are idols all around us because when we don't worship the one true God we crave false ones and here we see the Israelites will will turn from worshiping the one true God why because they are struggling to trust God is God really who he said he is and will he really do what he said he will do so we don't struggle so much to trust God when God works in our timetable do we (laughs) We don't struggle so much to trust God when, when the doctor report is all clear, all good. But we don't struggle to, to, to see someone trusting God when they're in the end zone and when they're celebrating or when they're at the podium and they're accepting the reward. We don't struggle to trust God, it seems, when things are going well. So maybe it's not God we're trusting there. Maybe it's ourselves. Where we struggle to trust God is when the opposite of all those things happens. When things don't work out like we thought they would. When things don't happen in the timing we want them to happen. Maybe some of you this morning are struggling to trust God as you consider 2017. 
as you look back on a year that did not go like you thought it would go. Maybe for you it goes back well beyond that. And you look back and you thank God that this isn't how I thought it would all work out. Perhaps in that moment you feel a bit like God's people at the foot of that mountain and you're you're waiting on God, but you're starting to think, I don't know how much longer I'm going to wait here, God. Maybe I need to fix things. Maybe I need to, to, to pull myself up by the bootstraps. Maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. After all, what's the, what's the cultural mantra of our day? God helps those who help themselves. That's not what the Scripture teaches. In fact, the Scripture teaches, friends, that we are rather helpless And yet what you see here at the foot of the mountain of God is a group of people who perhaps are saying that very thing. Well, maybe we need to help ourselves. Maybe we need to come up with a God for ourselves. Maybe we need to do something here. After all, they're not just abandoning God. They want to have a a festival to God. They want to make sacrifices to God. But they're trying to do it in their own terms. And it doesn't end well for them. And what's so awfully ironic here is what, when you consider well, where did a nation of slaves get all this gold from to begin with? <laughs> I mean, they spent hundreds of years as slaves. Where did they come up with all these gold rings to melt down? You know where they got it? From the Egyptians. Scripture tells us that as God miraculously delivered them, not only did He free them from their slavery, but on their way out, He allowed them to plunder the Egyptians. The text literally says the Egyptians gave them whatever they asked for. And so the picture here is not that the Israelites are are, are beating them down and taking their stuff. The picture here is that the slaves on the way out of Egypt are saying, oh, by the way, can we have your gold? That literally Egyptians are lining up here saying, here, take our stuff. And why did God do that? Well, God was providing for His people. God knew what was to come. He knew the journey they would have to the land of promise. And so He is preparing His people for this journey. He is providing for them. In fact, we see here on the mountaintop as God gives instruction to Moses all the details of the tabernacle and what it would involve. And God had already provided all this gold and all these things. God had given this provision to God's people in order that they might rightly worship Him and survive. And what do they do with this provision? They they use it to make a false god. They take the very thing that God had given them and entrusted to them for them to use for His glory. And they use it for ungodly things. And friends, we're tempted to do the same thing, aren't we? You think about the means through which we sin and the things that we do and how so often we take the talents and the resources, the bodies that God has given us, and we use them for gross immoralities and wicked things. The very tongue God gave us to praise Him, we use to do what? To curse Him. 
that the very resources God has blessed us with that we might be a blessing to others, a blessing to His kingdom. We use them on our own selfish desires. Perhaps we are not so far away from the foot of this mountain as we might think we are. And it gets worse. Because not only do we see that, that we sin as the Israelites sin, we see the result of sin here. Notice the second point there in your outline. That second bit of instruction we can learn from. Point two, as a result of our sin, we deserve God's wrath. Now notice the conversation here between the Lord and Moses. Verse 7, the Lord says to Moses, Go down for your people. <laughs> He doesn't call them His people. He doesn't say, My people whom I delivered. He says, Hey Moses, you need to go down. Now Moses at this point doesn't know what's going on. God is fully aware of what's happening. God's fully aware that the people are rebelling against Him. But Moses doesn't know this. And so God here is telling Moses, Moses, you need to go down the mountain because your people... Why aren't they God's people? Well, God here is saying they don't want to be my people. Your people, Moses, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. Again, we know God brought them out of the land. But you see, God's people, they don't want to be His people. He says they've corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. And notice what He calls them in verse 9. They're a stiff-necked people. That, that, that phrase there describes a, a farm animal who's too stubborn to wear its master's yoke. It's too stubborn to do what its master says. It is a stick-necked beast. And here God is applying this term to the Israelites. It's the first time we've seen it in Exodus, but now it will become a familiar term because God will often refer to His people this way. A stiff-necked people. We've come up with more acceptable terms today. Oh, they're just strong-willed. <laughs> they're, they're, they're so independent. Well, you know, he or she, you know, they're a bit stubborn. You know, the Bible says, the Israelites, the Bible says that we, we are a stiff-necked people. Because we don't want to obey God. And you realize that the call to the gospel, the call to respond in faith to Jesus, it begins with a call to obey God. And what I fear happens so often in the church today is we're surrounded by people, and we are people who we want God's blessings in our life. We love passages like Matthew 11 where Jesus says, hey, hey, come to Me and you'll find rest for your souls. We want that rest for our soul, but we don't want to obey. And you know how Matthew 11 begins? Jesus says, take My yoke upon you. He is describing here that very scenario of a master and its animal. He's saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What does that mean? It means that we need to listen to Christ and obey Christ. And if we'll do those things, he says, then you find I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Then you'll find rest for your souls. Is your soul restless today? 
Well, friend, it may be that you, like the Israelites, are struggling with being a stiff-necked people, at being disobedient, at being stubborn, (laughs) at being strong-willed, at thinking you know better than God. And notice what happens to them, verse 10, as a result of their stubbornness, of their sinfulness, of their rebellion, the Lord threatens to destroy them. Verse 10, now therefore let me alone, God tells Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Here God threatens to execute them. That the ultimate sentence is being handed down. Israel will end. In fact, God says here to Moses, listen Moses, I'll make a new nation out of you, but I'm going to wipe them out. that's a bit harsh, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, goodness, God. I mean, the the people have rebelled before. The people have questioned you before. I mean, why wipe them out now? Well, there's a reminder here for us. And the reminder is this. The wages of sin is death. And, And... And I fear we know that verse, but we really don't stop to consider what it means. The wages. What what you and I have earned, what we rightly deserve. The wages of sin is death. You're going to sit down, or someone's going to sit down in the coming months, that they're going to do your taxes, you're going to do your taxes. When you do those, you're going to have a line there. What were your wages? Imagine you went to your employer who you've been in a contract with for years and there's been this agreement. The agreement You do this job, we're going to pay you this wage. Imagine if you went to them come April 15th to negotiate a contract and they said to you, you know what, we've got a different deal this year. We're going to pay you a wage. Your wage this year is we're going to smile at you a thousand times. Actually, you've done a really good job. We're going to smile at you 2,000 times. How's that sound? Anybody ever paid their mortgage with smiles? If so, I'd like to know how to do that. Well, what if they say to you, okay, you know what, you did, you did a great job, so we're going we're gonna to pay you your wage this year, and uh, we're, we're going to wash your car for you every day. And we've got a few cars and they're dirty, but that that wouldn't work real well around my house. Would it work well at yours? No, what what, what do you need for a wage? You need what you've earned. You you need money for that wage. See, See, the wage is determined, the wage is set, and then the wage needs to be paid. Friends, you and I, are not going to stand before God one day and renegotiate what the wage is. You're not going to stand before a holy God and say, well, God, I understand. You set the wage. The wage of sin is death. I deserve death for my sin. But guess what? I think I figured out another way because I tried to be a really good person. Can that be the wage? God, you don't understand. I I mean, in Bloomfield, there were some pretty messed up people. I was pretty good. In my church, man, I, you know, 
They didn't give out plaques, but they should have, and I should have got one. I was the preacher of Bloomfield Baptist Church, God. Doesn't that earn me something? The wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve were placed in the holy sanctuary of God in the garden. And God said to them, if you can have anything here you desire. I have provided everything you'll ever need. That tree there, do not eat the fruit of it. The day you eat of that fruit, you will die. Adam didn't beat his wife. Eve didn't kill her husband. They in the garden didn't walk around and put together a little, a little golden cow and begin to worship it. They ate a piece of fruit off a tree. But it was sin, friend. And the Scripture said, God clearly said, the wages of sin is death. The day you eat it, you shall surely die. And, and we wrestle with this at times. We wonder, is that really fair? Let me ask you a question. Some of you in November of last year, you, you picked up the paper, you turned on the news, and you saw that Charles Manson had died. If you know much about Charles Manson, how many of you thought of him as a good person? How many of you thought, man, they should have given him early release? How many of you wanted Charles Manson as your neighbor? How many of you would entrust him to babysit your kids? Now what happened? We watched the news, we saw it, and many of us on the inside, whether we verbalized or not, we thought, well, he deserves something worse than death. You read history, you read about Hitler, and do you read and look at him and say, well, you know, I wish he had lived longer. You look at someone who's responsible for the, the brutal atrocities that he and others committed, and what do you feel on the inside? They deserve a fate much worse than death. So here's the issue. It's not that we don't believe the wages of sin is death. The issue is we just don't think our sin is that bad. But friends, God is holy and His standard is righteousness perfection prophet Isaiah said it this way all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way said your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God whether it was eating a piece of forbidden fruit or creating a golden cow to worship or striking down your brother to death? The wages of sin is death. And what God's people rightly deserve here is death. What they deserve is to be annihilated. What they deserve is before Moses even gets down the mountain, is for God just to wipe them out. But as we read ahead... And as we'll see next week, that's not what God does. Why? Well, notice what happens here. 
Verse 11, Moses implored the Lord. See, rather than leaving God to wipe out the people, Moses does something different. And in doing that, he reminds us of an important gospel truth. And it's this, point three there in your outline. He reminds us that we need a mediator to save us from the wrath of God. We need a mediator. God's people needed a mediator. And that's what they got here. Moses implored the Lord his God. Deuteronomy 9 tells us that Moses laid prostrate before the Lord for another 40 days and 40 nights, praying and fasting and pleading with the Lord not to wipe those people out. And what happens? Verse 14 tells us the Lord relented. Well, what does that mean? That did God change His mind? Was God about to wipe the people out and suddenly He just had this change of heart? Did Moses tell God something He didn't know? Because notice what Moses says here. Moses doesn't tell him the people aren't that bad. He doesn't try to make excuses for their sin. When he prays, he simply tells God, this is about Your glory and Your Word, God. You wipe these people out, the Egyptians are going to make a mockery of Your name, God. Was Moses telling God something he didn't know? Moses reminds God of his promises. God, you said you would bless them. You said you would bless their descendants. God, you have to be a person who is a person of your word because you said these things by your own name. Is, God telling, is Moses telling God something God forgot? Now what we see here is that God in His sovereignty already has a plan to save His people. And He's going to use Moses as part of that saving work. And He's showing His people, He's showing us today, friend, of our desperate need for a mediator. Picture it this way. God on His holy mountain and His righteous kingdom He looks down to us on earth and He sees our sin. He sees our wickedness. Now now you and I, we we see some sin and some wickedness. But there is so much in the world we don't see. There's so much in our own city we don't see. There's so much in our own hearts we don't see. And a holy God looks down from His mountain and He sees our wickedness and our sin and He says to His Son, Jesus, our mediator, it's time to go down the mountain. Because apart from your saving work, they will be killed by My wrath. That's what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. And the only thing that can save us from that death is to have a mediator, a perfect mediator, a righteous mediator. And that's who Jesus is. And God gives that call from His holy hill. And Jesus comes down to earth. And He does what? He dies a death that we deserve. He lives a perfect, perfectly righteous life in perfect obedience to the Father. But He goes to the cross for my sin and your sin and He dies in our place. And as our mediator, He goes before God and He pleads on our behalf. 
And not only does He die in our place, then we have this wonderful exchange where we can be covered by His righteousness. And we sang about it earlier. When our crimson stains can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the stain of our sin can be washed away because of what Jesus does. Friends, do you see it? That this picture in Exodus 32 is a picture of the Gospel. And it points us directly towards our need for Jesus. And it reminds us that apart from Christ, we cannot be saved. If Moses doesn't plead with God, the people die. In fact, we will see in the coming verses how some will continue in their rebellion and they will indeed die. But many are saved. Why? Because they had a mediator who interceded on their behalf. And friends, that's exactly who Jesus is for us. He has appeased the wrath of the Father. He has died in our place. He has come down the mountain that we might have life. God has given us this Word today for our instruction, for our example. So what can we learn from it? Well, hopefully there's much. But consider today, how how do you need to apply this text? For some of you, that application may be, take heed lest you fall. (laughs) If you're in a place where you're thinking, you know what? I'm doing pretty good, and I'm doing just fine, and I hear what you're saying, Pastor, about all these other people and their sin, and they need to repent, but I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) If that's what you're thinking, You're not doing very good. No, you need to humble yourself. And you need to understand that you're an inch away from an idol and worshiping that idol. And you need to take heed and you need to repent. And maybe for you the application is you need to take sin more seriously. That the wages of sin is death. Not just other people's sin. Not just really bad sin. That there's no inconsequential sin with the Lord. That there's no small sins with the Lord. All sin leads to death. And you need to repent of that sin and trust in Christ. And maybe your application today is to realize your desperate need for a mediator and to call out to Jesus. Maybe your application today is to learn from what Moses did here. I mean, God tells Moses, Moses, I'll just make a new nation out of you, bud. And I'm going to wipe the rest of them out. And what does Moses do? Moses is so broken over the sins of his people, he cries out to God. Friend, when's the last time you cried out to God for someone else's soul? Someone else's sin. We're really good about talking about people's sin. We're really good about telling other people about people's sin. When's the last time you were driven to your knees and you cried out to God over the sin of another that God might save them? Maybe that's the application for you today. For, For this to be a year when you get more serious about prayer, about crying out to God for the hearts and the souls of others. And Whatever it is, I pray that we would apply this word today that we would learn because it has been given to us not just as an example but for our instruction so let's learn from it if you would stand as i pray for us
Father God, as we come into this time of response and time of invitation, I do pray that, that we would apply this Word, that we would not ignore it. I pray that this would not be a Word that goes in one ear and out the other. But I pray this would be a Word that would be rooted in our hearts. I pray, God, for us that You would reveal to us our pride and our arrogance. Perhaps we think we are far better than we are. I pray that You would show us our sin and how desperately wicked and dark our own hearts are. I pray, God, that You would help us to see our desperate need for a mediator for Christ and that we would call out to Christ today. And if there's any here who's yet to confess that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that You raised Him from the dead, I pray that today, today would be the day of salvation for them. Perhaps for others, Lord, You're showing them the need in Your Word, the need in their life for them to be more compassionate towards the lost around us. The need to intercede for them. The need to point them towards the perfect mediator who is Christ. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray during this time of response that You would lead us to respond to Your Word, to apply it to our lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.